here, imagine a world where men are totally in charge. Some of you are like, like right now, fair enough, fair enough. But imagine a world where men are totally in charge, but they have the backing of the justice system and the military to oppress women. That's the dystopian world created by an author named Margaret Atwood in a book called The Handmaid's Tale. It's a pretty popular book, won a bunch of awards, and it's become, I think, a show that's on Hulu. So in this, she imagines a world where second civil wars happen, and America splits, and a large part of America becomes what she calls the Republic of Gilead. And the Republic of Gilead is a totalitarian theocracy run by male religious fanatics. And Gilead is run where men are at the top and women are at the very bottom. It's also a world in which she creates where uh, infertility is now a major problem. Lots of women uh, cannot get pregnant and have babies. So any women who are fertile in the Republic of Gilead, but also deemed the fallen, meaning they're sinful in some way according to the rigorous rules of Gilead, uh, are given to a commander and his wife who are infertile to help them have a child. I'll let you figure out what that might look like. Other women who are infertile, who are fallen, serve in kind of slave-like roles in the Republic of Gilead. Now, Margaret Atwood says in interviews, I've read some interviews with her, she's like, I'm not trying to say these are Christian people, it's just a dystopian world I've created. But interestingly enough, I read the book, uh, the the leaders of Gilead use uh, the biblical story in Genesis 29 of Bilhah uh, to back this handmade situation. In that story, you have Jacob and Rachel, similar to Abraham and Sarah, where uh, Rachel could not get pregnant, so she gives her handmaid Bilhah to her husband, so they can continue the line. She kind of does an end around God, which never a good idea, as we talked about before. So they use that in the Republic of Gilead to substantiate that this is an okay uh, way to do life. It's just a book, it's just a story, but we do live in a world, thankfully that's not to that degree, but we do live in a world affected by a term called patriarchy. Have you heard this term? Patriarchy. It's actually a Greek word that's made up of two smaller Greek words. The the word for father and the word for ruling or rulers makes our Greek word patriarch. So it's it's like ruling fathers. And it goes back to this idea all throughout history, not just Christianity, but all throughout history where society has kind of been arranged by ruling fathers or ruling men. Whether it be uh, in the New Testament, the background was these households, sometimes 20, 30 people, and there was a paterfamilias at the top, a male, the oldest male in charge. Or go back even further, and there's clans led by men, and the men would be seen as the protectors and the providers. That's the idea of patriarchy. I would define, this is totally my definition, take it for what it's worth. I define patriarchy this way. Any system or way of thinking where men by design are placed in a hierarchy over women. So it's true that Christianity and the Bible has been used to support this, have had patriarchy embedded in it. And that's true for even many modern Christians. Dr. Owen Strachan, he's a Baptist theologian. He's seen as a key thought leader for Christian patriarchy. He says this, God created a divine order in which husbands rule over their wives. And this order was established at the beginning of creation. The man is created first in the Old Testament and possesses what the New Testament will call headship over his wife. Adam has constituted the leader of his home. He's given authority in it on the basis of man's domestic leadership, 
Men are called to provide spiritual leadership and protection for the church. Another popular female Bible teacher who believes in patriarchy simply says, women are God's gift to men. How do you feel about that, ladies? <laughs> just, I'm just the messenger here, you know? Whew. So it's hot in here. So I, just, I want to say at the beginning, in fairness, as we talk about the, this question, that I, don't, I, I hate when people do this to me, when I hold a theological position that I think is rooted in Scripture, and then people caricature it. I don't want to do that today. So there are different degrees of patriarchy, and I just want to say that. And so there's, some of you may be in this crowd today that believe in a degree of patriarchy that by design men are supposed to serve in certain roles. Um, I'm not going to argue that today. I'll, I'll argue the opposite. We can disagree. We come around the table, and we're brothers and sisters, and that's okay. And you're free to disagree with me. I don't want to be unfair to, to the opposite side. But really, at the end of the day, what you think about this and what I think about this and what culture thinks about this is secondary to what the Bible says about it. We want to be a church that comes to the scriptures, opens them, and is led by the Holy Spirit, try to figure out what's happening in the original context, and then live it out in our present world. So that's why our question today in the series is, is the Bible sexist? There is an idea, uh, and we're in a series that we're looking at barrier questions. There is an idea out there in culture and people within this church, maybe some of you, that, yeah, the Bible's sexist. And that's a barrier, obviously, to you following Jesus. So we're going we're gonna to look at the scriptures today and try our best to answer that question. We're in the series called 10 Questions. And uh, we've been looking at questions. Uh, Nijay looked at, can the Bi- we take the Bible seriously? Last, uh, or two weeks ago, I looked at, does the Bible support slavery? And there's ones that went before that. We're giving you a ton of resources. Our big read is Confronting Christianity by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. I encourage you to, to read along with us. And then every teacher provides a long list of resources. So any of these questions, if you want to dig deeper, and as disciples or as apprentices of Jesus, you should. You should be learning and digging deeper. Uh, dig into those questions. So if you're bothered by something I say today or disagree with me or like it or it's new, there's a ton of resources. Nijay's here somewhere, but he wrote a whole blog series. I think it was like 24 blogs or something on like women in ministry, which I thought was really excellent and even helped me in framing some thoughts uh, today. So that link is included in there. There's videos and podcasts, so dig in. Um, we also have a Cutting Room Floor podcast. I know you're like, these messages are already really long. You got more to say? Yes. And so uh, this week, uh, I'll actually will not be part of it. We'll have some of our female pastors discussing these things, which is totally fitting. So I hope that you will uh, join in there. So before Sherry Davidson comes, she is one of our elders of our church, and she's going to read our scripture today from Luke 7, 36 through 50. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, just thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for uh, this church. Thank you for how you've woven it together as this beautiful tapestry. And thank you for the men that are here. Thank you for the women that are here. Thank you for the, the call upon our lives to come together and be the church and proclaim in word and deed uh, your goodness and your grace to lock arms together and make the world right again. We pray with all the emotions around some of these questions and topics, some of the hard things that your word says some of the hard things that I'll say today that will be challenging to some folks, that we would be gracious with one another and kind and that we'd have ears to hear, we'd be quick to listen, and we would truly be apprentices of Jesus, that we'd want to be learners, that we would not come away from today's engagement with this question the same, that we would be transformed. Uh, Have your way with us. Uh, We love you and we praise you. We pray in Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. 
A reading from Luke 7, 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's table. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owe money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came, in, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thanks, Sherry. So we did a series on uh, Luke uh, a couple months ago. Hopefully you remember. If you don't, that's really depressing because we were like months in it. You know, it's like oh, there's part of my life that's gone. Um, Luke 7 we're in today, so I thought it'd be cool to return here. This is just a framing passage. We, we want to go about these topical messages, grounding them in Scripture. So this kind of passage helps us see how Jesus sees women in a highly patriarchal World. That's what I, so we're not going to go deep exegesis here. We can come back to it later in another, another time, but just kind of take a snapshot of how Jesus sees them. But if you remember from Luke, we called it uh, the great reversal. That in Luke, that's a key theme. Jesus is continually turning things inside out and upside down. This is another example. This story of Jesus being a woman, uh, anointed by a woman at the house of a person named Simon is in all four Gospels. But this is a unique one, and I think this is a, a different than the other three. That's my own personal opinion. Scholars disagree on that. But this seems to happen in a different place in the country way earlier in the Jesus story. Doesn't really matter, kind of nerdy scholar thing. But we go into this story, and we see that the setting is Simon the Pharisee's house. So Pharisees were one of five sects in, early, in first century Judaism. And they were the ones that were, they were thought of as being the most faithful. They were the ones most connected to the public. So we can pretty reasonably estimate that Simon the Pharisee, he's named, was of high regard in his little town in the area. 
He was at the top of the hierarchy, if you were, in a patriarchal world in this Jewish setting. So that's his home, and he's having, uh, he's having dinner, and I think he's very skeptical of Jesus. The Pharisees were constantly skeptical. I think he's trying to vet Jesus. We see that in some of his responses, even in the story. But he invites Jesus as his guest of honor, early on in Jesus' ministry, to come to dinner. And then you see people aligning, as we've talked a lot, around the dinner table that showed who was most important. It was a pecking order. So they would sit, and it was probably Simon, and Jesus as the guest of honor, and then all the really honorable people All the men who were anything and everything were there. That's the scene that you need to get. Small little communities, a couple hundred people a lot of these towns back then. Everybody knew everybody. So that's the scene. They're they're sitting there, all men, probably in the back. Jesus is a public figure. Maybe people could have gathered in the back to kind of listen in. There could well have been women there, people coming and going. But the table, the place of honor, was all men. Now, we're told that they were reclining at the table. There will be a picture coming up, a famous painting of this anointing story. But let me try to illustrate it a little bit. Tables were probably like, yeah, something like that. Maybe not as much a couch, but more maybe like a big pillow everybody had. And so you would recline like this, and most people would recline with their, if their right hand and with their left arm like this, and then you'd eat, and you'd talk, and you'd connect. Something like that, the best we can tell. You would have your feet down here, because feet are gross, amen? Just like everybody's feet. But even in that time, you're walking in bare feet, and it's dust and dung, and hospitality meant that you had your feet clean, but come on, right? There's germs, and they're just kind of gross. So feet were down here. So we have to picture the scene to really understand what's, what's happening. So Luke tells us that they're all sitting and talking about we don't know what, right? Bunch of men, places of honor, eating. And in walks a woman, and Luke gives us the descriptor that she lived a sinful life. He's not trying to be derogatory. He's trying to tell us something about the woman. This phrase usually was given to indicate the woman was a prostitute or involved in some sort of systemic sexual immorality. So she was stigmatized. This is what we have to get in the story. Simon, way up here on the hierarchy, at the very top, this woman about as low as you can go. You have it in your head? A bunch of religious men sitting at a table, and in walks a prostitute. That's the story. And there's tension in the story. you got to get the tension. So she walks in, and I see all the religious men, the rabbis, the Pharisees, leaning away, averting their eyes. Everyone would have known her, small town, and she would have known some of them really well. You know what I'm saying? They lean back, look away. I see Jesus leaning in, never taking his eyes off her. I think when these, when these things came about, I think Jesus got a little twinkle in his eye. He's like, all right, this is action, time to teach. So she walks in, and, and people kind of gasp and lean back. Well, it gets worse. It gets more tense. She walks in, and around the table, getting close to these men, they would have seen themselves as, as becoming impure to even be in her presence. Then it gets even more tense. She leans down, picture this scene, on her knees by Jesus' feet as he's talking, and she has oil, which it was common to anoint people with oil, mostly their head, to clean their feet with olive oil. Sometimes it was normal. We think she probably had pure nard, which a vial of pure nard would have been a whole salary for a common worker throughout a year. That's how expensive it was. So she uncovers her hair, what no respectable woman would have done, and she takes her hair, and then she, she cleans Jesus' feet with this really expensive perfume as she's weeping on his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. 
<laughs> I, can't, I can't describe the amount of shock and awe that would have been in the room. It would have been breathtaking <laughs> to be there and to see the amount of shock and awe, all the faces. And to, I don't know what Jesus' face looked like. I think he had a smile and a twinkle in his eye. He was seeing her. And then Luke tells us what Simon's thinking. Simon doesn't say it. Simon's thinking, oh, he's definitely not a prophet if he's letting that woman touch him. That's what Simon's thinking. Then Jesus clears his throat and says, "Uh, Simon, I have something to tell you. So Simon's doubting if Jesus is a prophet. Luke's showing us he's a prophet because he's reading Simon's mind. That's what's going on in the text. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he said, yeah. He's like, let me tell you a story. So Jesus tells him a parable. Remember, parable just means, the Greek word means to throw alongside. So it's stories that Jesus throws alongside everyday life to help us imagine what the kingdom's like. So Jesus throws this very simple story out. It's like, Simon, there's two people. One owed two months. One owed 20 months' salary to a bank. And the bank said, you're both forgiven. Who loves the bank guy more? It's essentially the story. And Simon answers correctly. He says, the one who was forgiven more. That's the correct answer. But here's how Jesus' parables work, not only for Simon, but for all of us, me as well. When we answer and engage in them, we get caught in them. And Simon's caught in it. Because the two people that owe are him and the woman. And he says, Simon, you you barely showed me any hospitality when I came in here today. Hardly anything. Like, I know how you feel about me, Simon. This woman, she came in and she spent a year's worth of salary and she's weeping on my feet and cleaning them with her hair. I know what you think of this woman. and She is forgiven and Jesus forgives her in the presence of the town, which is powerful. And we can go into deep exegesis and all these things and it's such an incredible passage. Here's what I want you to get for today's question. We have this, this, this situation, the scene, the setting in a heavily patriarchal Jewish world, a little small town. Simon is at the very top. This woman's at the very bottom. Here's what the gospel does. Whoop! Just like that. That's how Jesus cares about women and sees women and sees all those who are ostracized and vulnerable. So I want you to get that from the story. Go back and read it this week. It's such a, such a great story. So that is what I call the great reversal happening there. Now, Jesus, Jesus saw women. Jesus valued women. That doesn't necessarily tell us what doctrinally he thought about women, obviously. So I don't want to make that jump. So let's get into some of that now. New Hope, uh, as a church, myself included, we have women elders and women pastors. You just saw one. So you don't have to agree with that. We can disagree with this. There are different beliefs in different churches, but I just all cards on the table here. That's, that's what we think. We think we're an egalitarian church. That's what the word, the word means, that we believe women and men are equal in personhood in Jesus, but they're also equal in role, that women can serve in any role they want to in the church. Uh, Ten years ago, I did not believe that. I grew up in a heavily patriarchal world. That's how I was raised. Good church, good people, grateful for it, but that's how I was raised, all the way up into 10 years ago, and you may be thinking, well, you're woke now, John. That's what happened. You became woke. (laughs) That's not what happened. I I promise you, culture did not change my mind. Culture is not going to change my mind on much because culture is crazy. People didn't really change my mind. The Bible changed my mind. And so I I thought about today, how do I want to frame this? Do I want to talk about one argument? I decided to frame up three arguments quickly that had a profound effect on me becoming an egalitarian. How do you guys feel about that? Okay, you don't have a choice. So we're going to go for it. Here we go. 
So the first one is, is probably the most intricate, and I'll take the longest on, but each of them will be very quick. The first of them, one I called the, the new creation argument. You remember back to Owen Strachan's quote just a few minutes ago that he built his case for a patriarchal view of scripture from Genesis 1 and 2. I think that's a tragic mistake. Because I don't think Genesis 1 or 2 says that at all. I think it says the exact opposite. So in my new creation argument, or the new creation argument, it's not my argument, you go back to Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1 and 2, it's not about science. It's just about how things got going. And it's poetry largely. And we have two narratives. They're not competing or contradicting. They're complementing one another. So I want you to ask, as I kind of walk through them briefly, do you see patriarchy or hierarchy in either of the creation accounts? So Genesis 1 it's, uh, it's a very simple account that God created everything that is, and it was tov, it was good, and then he takes dust and he, <laughs> he blows his life into it, and it's very good, and he creates man. That's what we think. That's not what the Hebrew word says. That's, that's a, a bias of male translators, to be honest. And Nijay's got a couple good blogs on this, and we won't go into the details there, where these kind of neutral words in the Hebrew and Greek, male translators make them he or man, and we just got to be careful of that. Um, we see that with the word junia and the name junia. We'll get to that. And just for the record, God's not a man. Do we know that? Just for the record, all right? So there's mother images and father images of God. All right, so Genesis 1. So God created, the, the Hebrew word is Adam, and it just means, I, I translate it, the human. So God created the human. So in Genesis 1, 27, it says God eventually would make the human male and female. So then we go to Genesis 2, and we get more details on how that happened. So this is kind of my version. God created it. He created the human in his image, to be his image bearer, to, be, uh, to have regency, to be a representative, to rule over creation with God, to help it flourish. That's still our goal is we're redeemed. That's what we're working back towards. So God creates the human that way, and he says, the human, I've given you all these animals, Go get them. And then, yeah, I don't know how this works with God, but then you see God going, I don't know. I don't think that's a good plan. You know, the human is alone. Just one entity of the human. So we're told that God kind of has this divine surgery. So he comes into the human, and he subdivides the human into two new humans, a male and a female. And they have complementary body parts so they can come together as one and produce more males and females to help rule the world and care for the world. Side by side, no hierarchy. Now, where patriarchal theologians will come in, they'll say, well, John, it says when God subdivided the human, he made the female new species to help the male. Well, the, Greek, the Hebrew word for help there literally means, this is really complicated, to help. So whenever you help someone, does that mean you're subjugated to them? I hope not. Think about that today and how that plays out in your life. That doesn't work. It just means to help. And that word, that Hebrew word, is used most often for God. So when we step back from those two creation stories, I don't see any hierarchy, any patriarchy. I see God making male and female to work side by side, to even come together to populate the earth, to have a regency and to rule in God's image, to help things flourish. And then Genesis 3 comes. Sin enters in. Uh, Niji, I think in one of your blogs, you said it's the undoing of God's good creation. I like that. Everything that was good started coming apart and cracking. 
including the male and the female working side by side, ruling together. Look at what, uh, look at what the, the, the curse says in Genesis 3.16. Then he said to the woman, this is God speaking, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And here it is. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Sounds like most marriages that I know. Right? The awkward laughter. Did you catch that? <laughs> no one knows to laugh if they're by their spouse. It's like this. And we see this throughout the world, that everything that could be broken was broken, including God's beautiful plan of men and women working to complement one another side by side in equality. And then we go to the New Testament, and we see Jesus, the ideal human, come to show us what humanity should be and what it looks like to image God and to rule well and to make things right again, who through death and resurrection breaks the power of sin and invites all those who trust him and follow him and believe in him to enter into a new family where we're restored to our original creative design. And it makes sense when you read verses like 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. That old way is gone. All that sin broke is gone. The new is here. Galatians uh, 3.28, one of Paul's earliest letters. Therefore, uh, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So that's the new creation argument. That's one argument. I think it's a powerful argument. The second one I called the redemptive argument. I won't spend much time on this because we talked about it in the slavery message. And it's the idea that the Bible, when it talks about something within a context, just because it assumes it doesn't mean it affirms it. The Bible is written within a context of utter brokenness, where things are not right, where people are sinful, and you're sinful, and I'm sinful. And the gospel enters in like a Trojan horse, full of goodness and grace, to change and redeem in time. And so we talked about that, how that played out with slavery. With women, I would challenge you to turn to almost any passage in the Bible that talks about women and it talks about women in a redemptive way according to the present context, which is usually incredibly patriarchal and demeaning. Where women didn't have personhood or rights and all these kind of things. The Bible moves it along towards the ultimate restoration of returning women to, to their created design, of who they were created to be. One example is the household codes in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, the Romans had these household codes. So it's kind of like if you have a chore list or a rule list in your house, it's like that. It's like this is how a healthy home is going to function. And the Romans hated disorder. Everything was about order. So you would have these families, maybe 30, 40 people, a potter familiar at the top, ruling, and you would have orders. This is who reports to who, basically. So Paul knew that. Paul knew that the way of flourishing in, in this new faith, the way of Jesus, wasn't to come in and try to overthrow the Roman Empire. They, they would get annihilated. So Paul wanted them to work within their present broken context towards the redemption of all things. So Paul gives them their own household code that looks very much like the household codes written around that time with a couple incredibly redemptive changes that I would call seeds of transformation that he planted deep in the soil of the Roman Empire that have borne incredible fruit if we see them and live them out. Two examples of this is that he, he called for husbands and wives to mutually submit. That was literally unheard of in those times. We, we don't find that. They would have been like, what? Submit to the woman? To that non-person, that non-legal entry? Sorry, ladies, this is how you would have been seen. Paul's like, mutual submission as brothers and sisters in Jesus. And then he goes one step further. He said, husbands, 
Love your wives. And you're thinking, John, well, yes, everyone should. In those times, frankly, marriage was not about love. There weren't Hallmark cards and Valentine's Day. It, wasn't, it was about procreation and survival. And so for Paul said, no, this isn't just about procreation and survival. You're to love your wives as Christ loves the church. What? We read that, and we read it through our present lens, and it doesn't seem that radical at all. It even might seem a little offensive to read those codes. That's chronological snobbery. When we see it within its present context, what Paul is doing is unbelievably provocative. The final argument I would call the historical argument, and that's a really simple one. That's the idea when we look at the biblical text within its context, heavily patriarchal, and we look at surrounding documents written around the biblical text, we see women in leadership everywhere. So let me give you a few examples of this. Uh, Old Testament, we always talk about Abrahamic covenant. Well, we forget Sarah. She was kind of an important part of the covenant. We have Miriam by Moses' side, a prophetess. We have her songs in scripture. She's leading right by his side. We have Rahab, this brothel manager that saves the lives of these two slaves. And where she's put in the story shows that she's literally the key that opens up the promised land to God's people. She is placed in the line of Jesus the Messiah. Then you have Deborah. Deborah's a judge who literally rules the nation. What does that mean? She literally rules the nation. I don't know what more to say. You have Esther, who was a queen. She risked her entire lives to save God's people. Had a book of the Bible named after her. Ruth had a book of the Bible named after her. She's this despised foreigner that is placed again in the lineage of Jesus and saves that family. The New Testament are just replete with examples of women in leadership. Rebecca McLaughlin in her chapter, I think brilliantly points out, going back to Luke, Luke is consistently pairing men with women. Joseph and Mary, you have Zachariah and Elizabeth, you have Simeon and Anna, you have Elijah in chapter four and the faithful widow, you have the healing of the centurion's son and then the raising to life of the widow's, the centurion's servant, then the raising to life of the widow's son. You have uh, Jairus, the, the powerful Jairus, and, uh, him, Jesus on the way to heal uh, the daughter of Jairus and stopping for the woman who was despised, who was bleeding. Luke 15, you have these stories of God's heart. Jesus is like, this is what God's heart's like. Right in the middle is a story of a faithful woman searching for a coin. And then, of course, we have this story of this woman who's the lowest possible rank on the hierarchy scale and, and the man who's way up here. And, whoo, Luke's wanting to make sure we're paying attention to this. And if you, if you disagree with my, my rendering of that text, go right to Luke 1, uh, Luke 8, 1. It's the verse right after the story that Sherry read. And again, they didn't have chapter divisions when the book was put together. So just right into this, look what he says. Luke's pulling our attention to this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Women paid for the Jesus movement. Do we see this? Am I missing? I'm not misreading it, am I? Then you look at one of Jesus' favorite places to hang, one of his, one of his uh, leadership spots that he would teach from and being reinvigorated was the home of Mary and Martha. We see so many scenes there. And then Jesus is climbing the hill to Golgotha. 
Luke stops Jesus in his tracks to notice the women mourners. There's hardly any men around supporting him. There's a group of women mourners that Jesus stops and looks at and interacts with. Who's at the foot of the cross? Well, we have John and a bunch of ladies. Who finds the empty tomb? Women. go <laughs> on and on and on. We go into Paul's letters. We go to the end of Romans. Paul lists a bunch of names. Read it this week. And he's, he's naming people in the many house churches in Rome. He lists more women than men. And he names them friends and co-laborers. It sounds a lot like Genesis 1 and 2 in God's original creative design. Lydia, Nympha, Phoebe, they were house church leaders. Phoebe delivered Paul's letter from the Romans, which meant that she read it to all the churches and taught it. We have Priscilla and Aquila, this husband-wife team. Priscilla's always mentioned first, which shows she was more important. We think she actually discipled Apollos, who was another key leader in the early church. And then back to our friend Junia, who for centuries, uh, male patriarchal translators changed Junia's name to a male name because they couldn't handle the fact that Paul called her his friend and co-worker and apostle. Rodney Stark is a sociologist who studied the, the, the early church, and he argues that the early church makeup was uh, way more women than men, which you may, that's how it is now, frankly. Look around. But it's astounding because in the first century, there were way more men than women because of infanticide and abortion and death and childbirth. The early church flipped the script. They were literally, the women powered the early church. So women, you look at scripture and is the Bible sexist? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you'll have to answer that. But we see a Bible that tells us because of the gospel's renewing spirit and returning us and restoring us to who we were created to be, that women begin to serve in the early church as deacons, teachers, prophets, church planners, evangelists, and apostles. Women, you don't have small roles in the story or cameos. You have main roles. And you need to hear that. All right, how are we doing? That was a lot. Right? Let's, get, let's do a little humor. You guys remember uh, David Letterman? I'm kind of old. I used to love David Letterman. And he'd have this top 10 list. Well, I came across uh, this, this uh, top 10 list by a guy named David Scholler on top 10 reasons men should not be pastors. You guys want to hear those? <laughs> They're a little satirical, and he kind of brilliantly, I think, frames them around the reasons we use for why women should not be pastors. But you're smart people. So, all right, here we go. Are you guys ready for this? All right. A man's place is in the army, number 10. <laughs> number nine, the pastoral duties of men who have children might distract them from the responsibility of being a parent. The physique of men indicates, number eight, that they are more suited to such tasks as chopping down trees and wrestling mountain lions. It would be unnatural for them to do ministerial tasks. I love this one. Number seven, man was created before a woman, obviously as a prototype. <laughs> Thus, they represent an experiment rather than the crowning achievement of creation. I hear lots of women laughing. So. <laughs> Number six, men are too emotional to be pastors. Their conduct at football and basketball games demonstrates this. Some men are handsome, and this will distract the women worshipers. Pastors need to nurture their congregations, but this is not a traditional male role. Throughout history, women have been recognized as more skilled than men at nurturing. This makes them the obvious choice for ordination. Number three, men are prone to violence. No really masculine man wants to settle disputes except by fighting about them. Thus, they would be poor role models as well as dangerously unstable in positions of leadership. Number two, the New Testament tells us that Jesus was betrayed by a man. 
His lack of faith and ensuing punishment reminds us of the subordinated position that all men must take. He's interacting with the argument that Eve, you know, you're smart people. Number one, men can still be involved in church activities even without being ordained. They can sweep sidewalks, repair the church roof, or perhaps even lead the song service on Father's Day. By confining themselves to such traditional male roles, they can still be vitally important in the life of the church. A couple of reflections. My wife tells me I need to get more humor in this series because she's like, it's just so intense. So I'm, there you go, honey. I'm doing what I can. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm here, uh, I'm here every Sunday with new material. Um, a couple of reflections. Um, the, the church, we, we need to, and you don't have to. I'm saying the church is your pastor. Our church, all churches, I think, need to lament how we've treated our sisters in the Lord. Um, it's crystal clear that Jesus names women as our sisters. I think it's, I think it's really clear that Jesus calls them co-laborers that can serve beside us, and the church isn't the church without our sisters side by side. But too often, uh, the church has not only used the Bible erroneously, I think, to oppress and suppress, um, but even more shockingly, uh, protected abusive men and not protected the women who have been abused. And that's just straight evil. I just need to say that. Um, I wish the uh, examples of that were rare, but they're legion. Um, two in, in, in the news right now, uh, prominent pastor John MacArthur, it's come out, and this is alleged, but that allegedly for decades has protected men in his church who are abusive uh, and on staff, uh, even to the point where he's told uh, men uh, who are in marriage and abusing their wives, he's told the wives to stay in the marriage and continue to get abused and not leave their husbands. Uh, the report this last week was just staggering and heartbreaking to me, as I hope it was to you, the, the Southern Baptist denomination, a third-party report, 400 pages, and they've studied the last 20 years, and they found that the leaders of the Southern Baptist Church have had a list they've kept secret of 700 men pastors who have been accused of abuse in some way. 400 in the Southern Baptist Church, 300 outside, and they've done nothing. They just released that list, so I'm grateful for that. But that is heartbreaking to me. It is heartbreaking. So like slavery, um, I think that we had a moment that we lamented as a church. I think we can't move forward and be the church that we're called to be in all of its beauty and glory if we don't acknowledge these things and lament them. I'm not saying you did anything wrong. Or that this, like, we're doing this corporately, so we need to get away from this I didn't do anything wrong thing. Like It's our house. This is the house we own. We're the church. If we're going to be the church, I think we have to practice lament. So I want to invite you in a spirit of lament, maybe 30 seconds I'll, I'll, I'll have of silence, and we'll have silence, and you can pray as led, and then I've, I've written a prayer that I want to pray over us and with us, and uh, you don't have to join me audibly, but hopefully you can join me in spirit. Let's pray. God, we lament how our sisters in the Lord have often been treated by their brothers in the Lord. We grieve the abuse that has happened and is happening. We grieve when that abuse is covered up. We grieve when the church provides safe haven for the abuser instead of the abused. Forgive us if we have participated in this evil in any way through action or inaction. Lord, have mercy on us.
We celebrate our sisters in the Lord as co-laborers and vital members of the body of Christ. The church cannot be the church unless our sisters in the Lord become who they were created to be. We commit to doing all we can to make this a reality. As they flourish, we flourish. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said. Two things uh, to men in the room. I don't, last thing I want is for you to feel vilified, beat up on, all that kind of stuff. And, and I don't want to speak for the ladies. I don't think that's in their heart either. Um, but I heard this line once, and it's hung with me. Um, we don't need less male leadership. We need better male leadership. That's what we need. And I heard a woman leader once told me, and I thought it was just brilliant. This is why we need women in leadership. Uh, she said, to, to, to bring it back to the creative design, to lift up our sisters in the Lord, doesn't mean we need to push down men that the gospel is the water that raises all boats, that it lifts everyone up. And I think um, we need to keep those things in our heart as we, as we work this out. Um, last reflection, similar to slavery, we need to live in our present moment. And uh, women are still oppressed in much of the world. Not all this is due to the church or those kind of things, but it's important that we wrestle with this reality. Here are some stats that were frankly staggering to me um, most of, uh, many of you may know these things. I'm sure many of you, you ladies know them and maybe have even experienced them. 736 million women, almost one in three, have been subjected to physical or sexual violence or both at least once in their lives. Almost one in four adolescent girls who have been in a relationship have experienced physical or sexual violence. 81,000 women and girls were killed since 2020, 47,000 of them died at the hand of an intimate partner or family member. That's one woman or girl dying in their home every 11 minutes. 81% of women have experienced some form of sexual harassment or assault in their lifetime. One in five women in the United States have experienced attempted or completed rape. A third of those are under the age of 17. Only 40% of women who experience violence report that violence. I'll never forget, my wife and I, we were having a spiritual retreat for some high school students and many hours, frankly, of worship and prayer and devotion, coming to the Lord's table, and then we, we would break off and we would offer healing prayers for the students. And they were powerful. These were powerful things. And this young lady came. She's maybe a sophomore or junior. I didn't really know her well. And she sat down, and I was like, how can we pray for you? And she just lost it. It was waterworks and sobbing and heaving. And then she told us, she's like, several years earlier, I was sexually assaulted, and I've never told anyone. And that woman, I mean, I was emotional. We prayed over her. We prayed for deliverance and healing, and then we helped her find healing. And I thought in the moment, like, what a courageous young lady. Because when we let in the light of the darkness, that's when we begin the journey of healing. And I just don't want to, I don't want to say those stats without saying to you as your pastor in this church in a, woman, in a room with so many amazing women, like, those stats are some of you. And some of you have done hard work to find healing and health some of you haven't, and you, you, you've never told anybody, and we're here. We're your church. And I know you don't want to come tell me as a man. I get that, but we have so many incredible female elders and pastors. Tell someone, help us help you. Have the courage to begin uh, the, the journey, and I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, years ago, my, uh, some friends and I, we were in a book club, and it was all dudes, and uh, and it would have been better with some ladies for sure, but it was all Fred's. We read a book called Half the Sky by a journalist and his wife, and they were talking about the state of women in our, in our world, uh, and, I, and I was shocked and broken. My heart was broken having daughters. And I remember we were talking about it, and, I, and one of us was like, we have to do something. What can we do? And so my friend had another friend who worked for this organization called Aruna, and they, uh, it means rising sun, 
and they work in uh, the slums in India to set free women, uh, young girls often, who, who are enslaved in sexual slavery. And one of the ways that you could help them, they said, you can plan a 5K in your city, and all proceeds go to us. I was like, we can do that. I don't know. Let's start talking to the city. And so this group of seven, we just began to do it. And it was messy. We didn't know what we were doing, but we did it. There's a, there's a picture of me running my, like, 15-minute miles there. Just <laughs> And today we've had six of those, and it's raised $80,000. And I don't say that to like, yeah, well, thank you. But I, I don't say that to blow more. I just say that like that's my advice increasingly with these things. People are like, what should I do, Pastor? I'm like, do something. Just do something. We didn't know what to do. But we did that, and I hope it was good. And it's such a small thing that can help. But read, learn. There's organizations. We're in active conversations. I'll keep updating you on a, with a local ministry uh, that's, that's kind of launching a domestic violence house. We're going to be a church that's going to do something. And so if, if something's percolating in you from one of these messages, learn more and reach out. Mark Twain once said, what would men be without women? Scarce, sir. Mighty scarce. <laughs> I mean, Mark Twain's hilarious, but you know, he's meaning biological, right? But like, I would say you know, the table tells us so much more, right? The table is like, this incredibly provocative thing that it, it, it epitomizes and represents the cross and the resurrection and, and the gospel getting into the core fabric of who we are and our brokenness and who the world is and slowly but surely making it right again. And it's our only hope for that. I'm, I'm convinced. When my wife and I were at the Western Wall recently, I had my expectations of what that would be, but I was kind of shocked and surprised because when I showed up, my wife had to go to a separate line it's run by ultra-Orthodox. And so we're separated. We can't experience it together, which is kind of sad. And I, would be, I took some pictures of, of bar mitzvahs where young boys would come with their family, and the sisters and the moms were like over the divider with their cameras, and they couldn't be part of it. I'm just like, ugh, ugh. And you see that in so much of the world, and I thought immediately of, of Paul's voice, a verse that uh, Jesus, the power of the gospel's work, is breaking down dividing walls. Come, Lord Jesus. It's our only hope. We're not going to figure it out without the power of the gospel, without the hope of the gospel. And I'm convinced, and I keep saying that in this series, I'm convinced if we actually take it seriously, let its power enter our bones in our church, and we live it out and follow it, we'll begin to live into that original, beautiful vision of the new creation, becoming who God created us to be. So go ahead and take your communion elements. Let's, let's live into that as we, we do what our Lord says and we practice and we remember. May this be catalytic to also how we live. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. So this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the sign of the new covenant, which is given in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may go ahead and... Uh, Partake of the elements if you haven't already. And if you're willing and able, stand with me, our beautiful tapestry of the church here, men and women side by side, giving praise to our King Jesus.